You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hey, everybody, and welcome. Wait a minute, what a great morning so far. Man, it's been amazing. Uh, if this is your first time, as always, we hope it's not your last. Just want to draw something to your attention real quick. You, of course, saw that Easter invite there. Something that's happening this Friday, of course, is our Good Friday service. It's the, the, the night, the day that the Christians traditionally celebrate the death and the, the crucifixion of Jesus. On Good Friday, we'll be having a special service of lament. Service of lament. You know, lament is a, is a biblical thing. Uh, lament is, uh, let me get my little definition here. The biblical practice, yeah, of taking our cares and our concerns and our complaints to a holy God with the goal of producing hope and trust. And, of course, uh, you see Jesus himself lament on the cross on Good Friday using a psalm of lament. And so that night we'll be helping you walk through that process to help us process what we've all been through this last year with that four-step biblical lament uh, journey. And so I hope you'll join us for that. Check your email this week for more details. I can't wait to walk through it all with you and prepare our hearts to celebrate on Easter Sunday. All right. So here we go. Welcome to the end of this journey we've been on for these last seven to eight weeks. Seven, this is our seventh message in this series. If you're just joining us today, three things, of course. Number one, glad you're here. Number two, if you've missed any of these past messages, you can get them all online. And third, because they all build in a way, if you're just joining us today, well then, congratulations. You may have just saved, I hope, the best for last. As always, I'll let you be the judge of that. In this series, we've been doing something a little bit different. We've been looking at various starting points for faith and specifically Christian faith by asking what about, like what about God? What about the Bible? What about science, etc.? And along the way, we try to show you that faith has a number of different types of starting points. Like there's some emotional starting points as in something connects with your heart. Uh, as a cultural starting points, like something resonates with a thing we see or feel in culture. And faith also has of course, rational starting points, like something makes sense to your mind in, in a reasonable, logical way. And today we're looking at our final reason and final rational reason for faith, specifically, again, Christian faith. Today, I am going to do my best to lay out a rational case for why faith in Jesus Christ Faith in Jesus Christ as God, Savior, King, Lord, all those things Christians claim. Why faith in Jesus is perfectly reasonable and makes a ton of sense. So you can frame the whole thing today, again, by asking just this one simple question. Here it is. Why believe in Jesus Christ? Why believe in Jesus Christ? Three reasons I'm going to try to give you today. Number one is because of his claims. You should believe because of his claims. Number two, because of his resurrection. And finally, because of his message. His claims, his resurrection, and his message. I'm going to spend the vast majority of my time on that number one there, his claims. And then talk some about his resurrection and his message. I hope you'll stay with me along the way. Here we go. Why believe in Jesus Christ? Number one, because of his claims. All right, because of his claims. Here we go. If you'll examine, maybe you have, uh, the different uh, founders of the great religions of the world, you'll notice this, I'll put it like this, a striking, maybe even singular difference at the heart of the lives of the people of all, all those founders, contrasted with Jesus. 
For example, whereas Muhammad only claimed to be, you may know this, a prophet who pointed people to Allah, whereas the Buddha, through the compelling nature of his character and his teaching, he was asked if he's a god. He replied, I am enlightened. I've experienced nirvana. I can show you a path. But he said, I'm not God. Jesus Christ, by contrast, repeatedly claimed to be God to his own demise, claimed to be, we're going to look at it, not just a prophet, not just a teacher, but to be God. That's a big deal. And since he claimed that, I think we should look at that. So let me just give you a number of places where he makes that claim. Not going to give you a chapter and verse because it would take too long. But if you want to fact check me, be my guest. All right, here we go. We're going to look at these. Here we go. He claimed that he and God are one. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. He claimed to be the judge of all the earth. He claimed to have existed for forever. It's a big one. He claimed he will return at the end of history. He said he was I am, the Jewish name for God. He said he alone could bring eternal life. He claimed we will be judged in the end by our attitude towards him. He received human worship and did not correct those who worshiped him as God. He claimed to be finally the son of God, a Jewish claim to equality with God. I could go on. These all put us in a pickle, do they not? Because all other founders of all other faiths say, like, I could teach you about God. I could point to a path to God. Uh, I could show you how to find the divine. But only Jesus says, I, big deal here, I am the divine God who has come to find you. Big difference. So what do you do with that? His own claims sort of push you, don't they? Yeah, his own claims make it an all or nothing deal. His own claims show you and make it clear he's not coming to be like your assistant. (laughs) He's not coming to be a friendly, like spiritual barista where he like individualizes like your mocha whipped, you know, faith system. He hadn't come to be like a, a heavenly friend with benefits, okay? He hasn't just come to point to God. He claimed to be God. Those are his claims. And so... To deal with him, I think honestly and fairly, like you would want to be dealt with, honestly and fairly, means you have to deal with these claims. So we're going to do that. What do you do with those claims? What do you do with those? A number of responses. We're going to look at them each in turn, roughly fourth overall. First reaction or response that people have is to say this, you know what? Hmm, On second thought, I'm not really into the claims. I'm more into his teaching like teacher of love, forgive your enemies, etc. But if this is you, if that's what you're saying, like, I mean, I, I like his, his teaching, but on his claims, you should, I should ask, you should ask, well, what parts of his teaching are you talking about? Is it the teaching where he teaches you, he will judge you at the end of history based on your response to him? Is it the teaching where he looks at some of the people who are opposing him and says, you know who your father is? It's the devil, Oh gosh, you say that's kind of harsh. Yeah, well, my point is his teaching is based on his claims. These things only make sense if you understand that he's making them in light of his claims. So to just say, I like his teachings means you probably haven't read his teachings. Let me suggest that to you. Because again, his teachings only make full sense in light of his claims to be God. For example, if I walk over, I punched Pastor Brett today. Never a good idea, by the way. I wouldn't advise it. And uh, Pastor Rosalind looks at, look at me, looks at me after I punch Pastor Brett and she says, Morgan, I forgive you. (laughs) That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? The answer is yes, it would be super weird. Why? Because I didn't punch her. (laughs) Never a good idea either. Uh, You know, or to punch anyone. We're not endorsing punching today. Okay. But how could she forgive something that wasn't done 
to her. Only Pastor Brett could forgive me because my sin would be against him. In the Gospels, Jesus looks at a man, a crippled man. He can't walk. And Jesus says to him, your sins are forgiven. That's horribly offensive. Unless Jesus really is God. And that man's sins were against him. Jesus would not be saying that unless he believed he were God. My point is, no other religious founder ever offered complete forgiveness. His teachings were based, therefore, on his claims. You can't separate them out. It'd be like saying, Morgan, I'd like a taco, but hold the tortilla and the chicken. I'm going to tell you, that's not a taco. That is a salad. That is a salad, right? No, no, no. Jesus' teachings are about his divinity. Summarize it like this, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, as always, frequently and famously puts it best. He said this quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Because a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You say, Morgan, okay, fine, I've made my choice, and I think he's one of those other options that guy C.S. Lewis suggested. He's like a legend, huh? His followers made it up. He's a liar, or he was just crazy. He's a lunatic. So, but I want to tell you, because we're going to look at each of those classic objections in turn, there are real problems with saying Jesus was only a legend, only a liar, only a lunatic. Let's ask them, was he a legend? Was Jesus like a legend? Here's the objection. Jesus never like personally claimed to be God after his death. His disciples wrote a bunch of accounts because he was still like a good teacher and they stuck his claims to divinity in there. Like you get like the extra cookie in the bag, right? At the drive-thru or even worse, another sort of way of putting it goes like this. Way after the life of Jesus, Because the Gospels had never really been written down. They were only oral tradition. Way later, some church leaders in a crisis moment to get people to support them stuck into the mouth of Jesus the answers they wanted to give to help them consolidate their power. Basically, if you've heard that, if you've read that, or if you've seen that, that means you've heard, read, or seen The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown starring good old Tom Hanks. And if you've heard that, you've read that, you believe that, oh, I want to tell you. It's not true. It's called fiction for a reason. Okay. So let me give you quickly five reasons why the New Testament documents are not legends. Why you can trust them. First, uh, you know Jesus isn't a legend because the New Testament documents were written too early to be legends. Like that is too early close to the source of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are called the synoptic gospels, all written within 30 years of Jesus' life. The gospel of John within 60 years. These were all based on eyewitness accounts. Paul's letters are called his epistles. Many of them we know were written within 15, 20, 25 years. And they all have, all, have the same central message that Jesus Christ died on a cross that he rose from the dead, his followers claimed. Hundreds of people claimed to see him alive, and they worshipped him as God. That is the core of first-generation, first-century Christianity. That stuff is in there, therefore, because it really happened and people really saw it. To give you an example, uh, in 1997, 
a couple of years ago. I was playing baseball at the University of Houston, and we were on a spring break road trip to Florida. We were playing well, winning a bunch of games, because apparently that's what the University of Houston does these days. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Basketball game, tournament, all that. All right. We just cracked the top 20 in national rankings, and we had a game scheduled at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Now, I've got a gentleman, a family in my community group, Sam Chang. I know you're watching right now with the University of Florida. You may not like this story, brother. All right, but it's for you. So we got there. Uh, we got to, to UF. We got off the bus, got warmed up, about to play the game when this huge thunderstorm blew through Gainesville, Florida. We thought that, you know, it was kind of in and out pretty, pretty fast, but regardless... The University of Florida canceled the game before we ever got going. No one played, no game, it didn't even start. We thought they were just scared to play us, but you know, it didn't matter. The next morning, next day, this is true, the Gainesville local paper ran a story which said that, in fact, the University of Florida had defeated the University of Houston the night before. Stories, box score, runs, errors, a whole thing, a byline, somebody put their name on the story. Now, my grandmother... My grandmother, God rest her southern soul, had driven down from Jacksonville, an hour and a half south, to Gainesville to watch me play. She was a newspaper reader. She picked up a newspaper, and to her shock, because she was there and knew there had been, in fact, no game, was shocked to read the local paper's account of the game that never happened. She, of course, unwilling to take any nonsense off of anybody, called up, Carrie's laughing because she knew her, called up the paper and gave them such grief that, in fact, they did acknowledge that, 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 you know, they were wrong and they published a retraction. Now, here's my point. When you have living eyewitnesses to an event that takes place publicly, it's something a lot of people care about, they're invested in. You can't just publish wholesale made-up events. And so when you read the account of Jesus feeding 5,000 plus people on the Golan Heights, a visible public place, when you read accounts of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in front of the whole town of Bethany, You can't just write these things along with names included as fact checkers if they did not happen. Second, the content of the Gospels is also too counterproductive to support a leadership power play and therefore support the argument of Jesus as a legend. Uh, Look at the Gospel of Mark quickly. It's the earliest Gospel written, most likely. It's likely Peter's detailed eyewitness account to a guy named Mark. And in the book of Mark, it tells you this, that Peter denied the founder of Christianity. Peter cursed Jesus. Peter ran away under duress. That doesn't help your cause if you're wanting to be the man, the leader, right? And that goes for all the disciples. They look like super dim-witted, clueless. They fight over who's going to be the greatest. Like it's like they get the block or the toy and the happy meal or something like that. Like we all know, we all know a lot of politicians scrub spin, make themselves look good to get in power. But the disciples put in their worst failures, their most damning moments. If you're trying to be in charge, just consolidate your power. That's the worst thing you can do. Which, by the way, just shows you that the early Christians, they had a way different basis for their identity than you and I have. Third, third reason that the New Testament documents are not legends is because the first eyewitnesses, you may have heard this, to the resurrection were all women. If this is new for you, you should know this. A woman's testimony in Jewish or Roman court was not admissible. Didn't trust women. You know, you may not like that. I don't either. But the point is this. Once again, if you're making something up that wasn't true to get in power, 
all this does is create an insurmountable barrier in your audience's mind. Doesn't help you. Fourth reason the Jesus wasn't a legend. It's because the content of the Gospels doesn't fix later church problems. Okay. If you read, uh, say, the book of Acts, you read a lot of the epistles. They're all about Jewish-Gentile conflict, right? I mean, the most frequently mentioned church challenge was ethnic and cultural tensions. Aren't you glad times have changed, right? Many of the first leaders came out of Judaism. They got rules like what you can eat, you can't eat, do this, don't do that. What would have been the easiest fix? The easiest fix would have been to write into the gospels, put into the mouth of Jesus, what they should specifically do. But that's not in there at all. Why? Because the gospels were not only written too early to pull that off, but the writers, these old school church phrase, had the fear of God on them. They knew they cannot, should not put into the mouth of Jesus something that they, he did not say. Uh, they had too much respect. Kind of like, and forgive me for this, there's that scene in the dark night. If I've lost you, I've got you back here. We're talking about Batman in church. One of Bruce Wayne's employees in the movie thinks he's figured out Bruce Wayne's Batman. Remember the scene? And he threatens to go public with the info unless the Wayne Corporation gives him millions of dollars in blackmail money. And so the employee goes to his boss, played by you know, Morgan Freeman, Lucius Fox is the character. And Lucius Fox, here's this guy's blackmail account. And this is his response. It's beautiful. He says, let me get this straight. You think that your client, one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands? And your plan is to blackmail this person. Good luck. And for the disciples writing these gospels, I'd imagine, I mean, if someone was going to try to make something up, like one of their friends coming to them and saying, hey, you want to invent something for Jesus to say? You're telling me you're going to make something up about a man who can multiply food, control the weather, walk on water. He came back to life. Now apparently he can walk through walls. And he says, one day he will judge you and your plan is to make something up and put it in his mouth, good luck, right? The content of the Gospels doesn't address later church problems. Why? They're written too early. They are not legends. And fifth and finally, the literary form, for those of you who care about this, of the Gospels is not legend. Put it like this. When you read ancient literature, some of you are forced to read like uh, ancient epic poems, the, the, the Iliad, the Aeneid, the, uh, the, the Odyssey. They're written... In the same style, an epic style, very few details. You don't read stuff like this. On the morning before he sailed home, Odysseus gazed out his window, noticed a single solitary swallow, a lit on his windowsill. The, that bird was bright and beautiful and was singing in a, you know, a, a, a faint melody, sang to him for 22 minutes before taking off and finding a worm. No, you're welcome for that, by the way. No, that's how modern realistic fiction is written. That's not how ancient writers who wrote legends, how they rolled at all. A guy named Richard Bauckham, he's a literary uh, critic, New Testament scholar. He points out, for example, in the Gospel of John, this one scene at the end of the, of, of the Gospel where Jesus is now back on the beach. He tells his disciples to go fishing, go fishing again. They haven't caught anything. And it records there... That the disciples caught 153 fish. Like, what does that mean, Morgan? Does it symbolize like the nations who will one day stream into the kingdom of God like fallen angels? And the, I don't know what. Maybe it just means John was there and he saw a miracle. 
And he's giving you a specific detail to let you know he was an eyewitness to that scene, right? There's stuff like that all over the Gospels. People are are name-dropped left and right when stuff isn't even central to the plot. Why? That's the version of a footnote. You write a paper in college. You cite your sources. That's what gospel writers do. They cite their sources, give you names. Go ask them if you don't believe me. Now, does any of this prove that Jesus is the son of God? No, but it does reasonably, reasonably prove that his claims to divinity are not the stuff of legend. His claims to be God were in his mouth, from his lips, from the beginning. You say, okay, Morgan, he wasn't a legend. What about those other L's you mentioned? What if he was a lunatic? Like he was just nuts. Okay, all right. Lunatics sometimes claim to be God. They claim to be God. Okay, think about it though. Let me ask you, how many religions or cults have a founder who claimed to be God? You're like, there's a few. Okay, fine. Have any of them lasted Can you name one that's around after even 100 years, 200 years, 500 years? Are any of them taken seriously? You say, well, Morgan, in Eastern faiths, you know, the idea of God is that God can be manifested through an individual like they're an avatar of a divine. Oh, no, no, listen. To say to a group of Jews who were conditioned to not believe a human could be God, that a human could have always have existed, to say that a human was an expression of a divine, a human was a God coming in in, in, in in visible form, you don't make that claim to a group of Jews, right, for whom that claim was blasphemy and punishable by death. Right? You don't make that kind of claim. But Jesus did make that claim, and thousands of these same people came to believe it. Do lunatics, just crazy people, do crazy people keep a following, a billion people now, for 2,000 years. I don't think so. Say, so, okay, Morgan, what if he was a liar? As in like, man, he just deceived everybody. He was so good, like a charlatan and parlor tricks and magic tricks and all that. You know, he was just out for himself. Okay. Why did then uh, thousands of people follow Jesus even in his own lifetime? The most reasonable answer I think is this. It's because the actual life of Jesus must have been incredible. The actual life of Jesus must have been remarkable. His character must have been matchless. Listen, liars, deceivers, they get found out eventually. Yeah, his claims were were outrageous, but people who claim to be God, they don't have the humility Jesus had. Come on. They don't have the, the, the care for others, the concern for the least of these. Jesus isn't pompous. He's not arrogant. He loves, he touches lepers. No one else would do that. You've known some liars. Haven't you? You say, no, I haven't. No, okay, what does that mean about you? All right. I have too. Liars, their lives, in the end, you know they're not worth following. Maybe, maybe you feel like I got to vote for one, all right, because that's my only option. But you don't die for them unless you know their life is worth dying for. And again, the central claim Jesus made was that he was God. Was he a legend? Unlikely. Was he a lunatic, a liar? Listen, crazy people, deceptive people, don't serve others like Jesus did. And at the point of his death, he didn't buckle and retract his claim to escape suffering for it. No, he followed it through all the way to the end. And close with this thought, little interview here with the rock star, Bono. As always, rock stars put it best, right? Somehow, interviewer asked Bono, Jesus Christ has value and is ranked among the great thinkers of the world. But son of God, don't you think that's far-fetched? 
the Bono's answer. No, it's not. The secular response to the Christian story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, had a lot of good things to say along the lines of others, like Muhammad, Buddha, and Confucius. But Jesus does not allow you to say that. Christ says, no, don't call me a teacher or a prophet. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. So we're left with this. Either Christ is who he says he is, or he is a complete nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. And I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire globe, one half of the human race, had its history completely changed by a nutcase? For me, that's far-fetched. Well put. Why I believe in Jesus, number one, because of his claims. Number two, it's because also of his resurrection, which Christians, again, we're going to celebrate next week. Wouldn't you like to at least have some kind of faith that what you celebrate actually happened? Come on. Many people, okay, here's the objection. Many people say that the resurrection wasn't something there originally. What had really happened was the disciples were super heartbroken. They were lonely when their teacher and founder left them. And wouldn't you be heartbroken and sad too? And so they just felt like he was really with them. Like, you know, like, like when your pet dies or your, you know, a loved one or a parent or grandparent die, you just say like, I feel like they're really with me. It is a short step, you know, from like feeling someone's really with you to like, maybe he's still alive because we just feel him. And that got turned into the resurrection account. So no empty tomb, no resurrection, but, but, but. Here's the counter argument. In arguably the earliest New Testament document, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that not only did Jesus die and come back to life, but that hundreds, more than 500 people, had seen him alive again. What's he doing? Again, he's giving you these people as fact checkers. Go talk to them if you don't believe me. Paul wrote this in what's called the Pax Romana, a time of Roman peace where letters got circulated all the time. This information is easy to get out. He's saying, go travel, go talk to them, go meet them. You're saying, okay, fine, Paul, still wish fulfillment just wish fulfillment well do you know who you're talking about in terms of the ones making that wish like Jews didn't wish for that N.T. Wright is an excellent historian New Testament scholar he points out that while first century Jews were divided about the afterlife some Jews said well there's going to be a single resurrection at the very end of history other Jews said no 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 resurrection at all But no Jew ever claimed that a single solitary person would rise in the middle of history and history would still go on. So N.T. Wright and others point out, additionally, there were also dozens, you may know this, of other failed messianic pretenders around the time of Jesus' birth. There were a number of other folks claiming to be sias and almost all of them were executed by the Roman Empire. Romans like to keep a tight lid on things, right? But here's the point. Like the rest of the pretenders, Jesus was executed by the Romans. But unlike the rest of them, only Jesus' followers claimed he came back to life. No one else's followers made that claim. There was messianic expectation in the first century, but resurrection expectation by people who were conditioned to not believe it, that didn't exist. You say, Morgan, maybe they stole the body out of the empty tomb and they made it all up. Okay, so a bunch of fishermen with some hooks and a net, they overpowered a Roman guard, people who conquered a world. All right. And you're saying they stole the body? They agreed to cover it up like a huge lie at the center of it? And no one ever found that lie out? And almost every single one of them, you're saying, died for this lie? You say, well, Morgan, you know, early Muslims gave their lives for their faith. Okay. They did for what they claimed 
would happen. As in, if they gave their lives in the cause of conflict for Allah, they would receive paradise. But Christians didn't give their lives for something they said would happen. They all gave their lives for something they said had happened, that they had seen with their own eyes. What does Paul write? I am on trial. Why? For the resurrection of the dead, of Jesus. And if you still insist they made it all up, you got a bigger final problem. How to account for the birth of the Christian church? What's your alternate plausible explanation for the birth of a church? The birth of a church happened overnight in an environment like bleach that was designed to purge it of that kind of faith claim. Within 40 days of the resurrection of Christ, thousands of Jews, again, conditioned to not believe that could happen. They believed, they claimed he was God. They believed he even resurrected from the dead. And they all died for it. Okay. If you still say, Morgan, I still don't believe it happened. Miracles can't happen. Okay, now you're not doing history. Sorry. Because all signs point to the historicity of this. You're not objecting based on history. You're objecting based on philosophy. And that's another conversation altogether. Actually, we had that one two weeks ago. You're welcome to go listen to that message. Why believe in Jesus? Number one, because of his claims. Number two, because of his resurrection. And finally, because of his message. What was that message? Put it like this. Summarize it like this. Jesus described a problem and Jesus provided a solution. Described a problem, provided a solution. What was the problem? All right. Let's imagine there's a young man, young man, a little thought experiment here. Young man raised by a single mom. She works two jobs, fingers to the bone up all night to put him through high school, put him through college, raises him. She teaches him throughout his life to care for others, remain humble, care for the poor, etc. Well, let's say he graduates, he moves out, and then he completely ignores her once he becomes an adult. He sends her a card on Christmas and Easter. But there's no relationship with her, no time together. You know, if you went to him and said, listen, you're, you found out, you're, you know, his mom, you're saying, you, you know, your mom did all this for you? She worked like that for you. You don't talk to her. You've got no relationship with her. Why not? And if that man said back to you, back off, I'm a good person. I do what she taught me to do. I do good things. I care for other people. Why do I need her anymore? What would you say? He would say, that's not good, right? That's not cool, man. It's not okay. You actually owe her and she deserves a relationship with you. And on top of that, by the way, good people don't ignore those who have sacrificially given to them their whole life. Jesus comes and says, humanity, you got a problem. Your problem is you're disconnected from your heavenly parent, your heavenly father. You have taken the gifts he has given you, the teaching he has given you, even put it in your heart, and you use even the good things he has given you as a reason why you don't connect with him anymore. Not only do you owe him a debt, you're guilty of relational malpractice, Jesus taught. Even your good things, humanity, you use to keep yourself separate from God. There's a problem, a broken relationship, but it's on our end. What's his solution? 20th century writer, you may have heard of her. Her name is Dorothy Sayers. She's a thinker, a writer, a theologian, friends with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Dorothy Sayers wrote detective fiction. She wrote about a character named the Lord Peter Whimsey. She was British after all. Uh, Peter Whimsey solved crimes. He solved murders. He was brilliant, but the Lord Peter Whimsey was also lonely and single. 
And all of a sudden, in the middle of this series, a female character shows up in the Lord Peter Whimsey's life. This female character was tall, not particularly good looking. Dorothy Sayers, by her own admission, was tall and not particularly good looking. This character was one of the first women who ever went to Oxford University. Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women who ever went to Oxford University. Uh, This character wrote detective fiction. Dorothy Sayers wrote detective fiction. What do you think was going on? What was going on was, many literary scholars say was this. Dorothy Sayers looked into the world that she created. She fell in love with her creation. And she wrote herself into the story to save him. You say, oh, isn't that sweet? No, no, no. It's more than that. See, listen, that is what God has done for us in Jesus. He sees our condition, even that we, we weaponize every good thing he's given us as a reason why we don't have to serve him or connect with him. We're separated from him. But God wrote himself into our story to save us from ourselves. So a Christian, someone who simply said to Jesus, I need you to rescue me. Even my good things I've used against you, which you saved me, I need you to be Lord, God, King, Savior. Now, I grew up, if you don't know my story, last little bit here. I grew up, thankfully and gratefully, in a local church, and I heard a lot of teachings about Jesus, but I never received him as who he claimed to be. God, which means he comes first. Now, I prayed a few prayers along the way. Maybe you have too, but I was never really sure of what it meant for God to come in my life. But on a college campus, my freshman year, a teammate of mine there at U of H invited me to a Bible study on campus. That weekend, our team was playing OU or Oklahoma. Uh, I wasn't on the travel team, so I went to the Bible study while my teammate, the only person who knew me, wasn't there. But I showed up to told him I'd go. Preaching there that night was a person I did not know. He did not know me. At the end of the message, he calls me up to the front, sort of reluctantly get out, come out of the crowd. I feel obliged to. And he begins to say things to me, speak things to me, hear me, that only a supernatural God could know. No way he could know these things. Things I had thought, felt internally. He verbalized externally. Christians call this prophecy, all right, with a lowercase p. The point is Jesus communicated to me. He was real. He loved me. And he wanted me like he wants you for his own. I prayed the simple prayer, Lord, make me new. And I began to weep. I began to feel like my body was on fire, though it wasn't on fire. I didn't really feel any pain. But you say, that's kind of weird, Morgan, real metaphysical. Yeah, I was there. You weren't. You're going to have to believe me, okay? In that moment, I fully surrendered to Jesus, the thing I had been keeping from him. We all keep from him from birth, which is our heart, our heart. The thing I feared to lose the most, my independence, I want to tell you, that was what was crushing me. Maybe it's crushing you. The thing I longed to gain, unconditional love, I got. And I was transformed. Habits and sin I'd had for years, the power of addictions I had were instantly broken. I remember walking outside, smelling the air. It was like I was smelling the air for the first time. I'd be like taking your mask off after a year of COVID. Like, what's that? Like, fresh air. I remember seeing the moon. It was like I was seeing the moon for the first time. Again, 2 Corinthians 5. We read it at the beginning of our service. If anyone is in Christ, there are what? New creation. The old passes away. All things become new. And I was transformed. God saw I had a problem. I was separated from him. And he provided a solution through himself, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and he made it personal for me that night. Now, you may not have had, or may, may you have, a moment exactly like that. 
but you can have a moment similar to that. A moment where you surrender life, your heart, your will to Jesus because he claimed to be God. He proved it by his resurrection. And through his message, he tells you this. He loves you and he came for you. He stands, he says, at the door and he knocks. I wonder, will I, will we, will us, will you? Will you let him in? Let him in. I'm gonna take a moment and pray. Maybe some of you online at home, here in the room, maybe you'll just do that today. Lord, we come to you now. And Lord, I thank you for this moment for believing, moment for believing. You create space for this, where the space between earth and heaven becomes real thin. And I'm praying for that right now. Maybe, maybe you're here in the room, maybe you're online, and you sort of heart's pricked, mind's pricked. That's cool. God respects your intellect, and yet we know we, we still, we use our intellect against God. Sometimes the smarter we get, the more it is like fuel on a fire. It's like pouring gasoline under an already lit flame. You're saying, but I, I, I want to move toward God. That's cool. God's actually already moved towards you. He made the first move. He went first because he loves you. And if you're saying now, I'm in a, I want to follow Jesus. I want to receive him for who he is, who he claimed to be. God, come to rescue me. Just pray this. I'm not asking you to even raise your hand or your eyes or anything. That night, I didn't raise my hand. I prayed a prayer, not even out loud. What I did, though, on the inside was I just waved the white flag. Lord, I surrender. Maybe that's you today. If that is you, would you just pray this? I mean, pray it out loud on the inside. I don't care. Lord, I come tonight. Come today. I surrender. Receive you who you said that you were God in my life Jesus I receive you as Savior as King Lord ask that you change me from the inside out like a tree gets a new seed at the center of it so it can produce and create a new fruit Lord would you put a new seed inside of me I want to be born again Lord, I'm praying for us in this space that we would not only take that step, we'd remember that step for those of us. We'd remember. We're bought at a price. You saved us. We didn't save ourselves. Church can't save itself. Got one savior. Sure, not a politician. Not a pastor. Not a parent. It's you, Jesus. We love you today. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.